Hello, everybody. Welcome to the latest episode of the Diecast Movie Podcast, where we do movies where the genre is decided by the roll of a die, and we also do interviews. And today we're going to be doing Touch of Evil, the 1958 classic with Charlton Heston and Orson Welles and Janet Lee. And I'm joined by the one and only international man of mystery, Joshua <laughs> Kennedy. How are you doing today, Josh? Well, I'm doing very well. Thank you very much for having me. It's always a pleasure spending an afternoon talking about movies with you, my good man. So I appreciate being asked back. Well, you're 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 the OG of guest on the show. You were on episode oh. one, Inherit the Wind, and I think you've been on the most episodes overall. Oh snap! Well, let's let's keep those numbers going. Let's. Uh, <laughs> I want to be the the reigning champion. Let's let's keep going. <laughs> Wow, that's right. When was Inherit the Wind? That's twenty. That's pre-COVID, I'm sure. Well, yeah, I think it was four years ago. Wow. Wow, cool. Well, delight to be back. Yeah, it's great to have you back because you and I've talked about tons of episodes. You were you were also the overall main co-host, and we did it's a mad, 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 mad world. That mammoth that's right. episode where we had. 12, 11 or 12 different co-contributors that did five, 10 minute segments. But you, along with Michaela, Ben and I were the, the four main hosts yes, of yes, that yes. one. I mean, for it's a mad, mad world. I mean, that's, that's the way to do it. 12 guest stars and just mammoths. That's, that's, it's the perfect way to do it. <laughs> that's right. So it was inherit the wind. It's a mad, mad world. And we talked about, I mean, I'm sure there's, there was one about Saturnalia, I think. <clears throat> well, we but, did. Uh, we we have I've had two interviews with you, and so we've talked about a lot of your work in movies then, and mm-hmm. um, also you were in the James Whale retrospective series. Yes. Oh, that's the one I was thinking of. Yeah, yeah, with Greg and and Frank. Oh, cool. Yeah. yeah and you also did an episode. I think it was. Um, I'm going off the top of my head. Did you pick yeah. the Invisible Man? I think so. Yes, I think it was the where, where it was just you and I talking about it, right? Yes. Or, or yes. Yeah, I, I want to say, wow. Okay, yeah, I forgot about that one. Um, yeah, that sounds right. Huh. Yeah. yeah, you've been on. You've been on Ooh. a lot. Of, a lot of episodes. So it's, uh, you know, it's, you're you're one of the most. Free, you're either number one co-host or, or or somebody or Jeff Owens might have caught up to you. He's the he's your closest oh. competition. <laughs> oh, I'm honored to be you know in that. <laughs> in that competition, Jeff's great. Um, but let's keep going. We can beat him. <laughs> we beat him. Now, as people know, you live in Texas, and there's something I've been meaning yeah. to ask you because um, we hate to say it, but we lost recently Paul Rubin. Paul Rubens. Yes. And um, Pee Wee. And of course, Pee Wee's Big Adventure. There's a couple of things in there. And I'm, I got to ask you if this is true. You know, when people say <laughs> you can walk around Texas, if you want to prove you're in Texas, you can do stuff like this. Hello, Dottie. It's me, Pee-wee. Well, where are you calling from? Texas. Where? Honest. Listen, I'll prove it. The stars at night are big and bright. Deep in the heart of Texas. Wait, don't hang up. There's something I yeah, have to talk So, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> it, it's very true. Yeah, it's it's like it's it's we're hypnotized. If there's a little plate in our heads that's like metal but it's shaped like this 
Texas, the state of Texas, and anytime you hear that song, you just have to instantly, you know, we can't, we can't help it. So, <laughs> and I know, I know, one day you and I are going to do one of the two big movies, either the Disney one or the John Wayne one. But eventually, we're going to cover a movie, and he does a great little thing with it, also in the same movie. <laughs> hey, kid, what's your name? I can't remember. Where you from? I can't remember. Can't you remember anything? I remember the Alamo. (laughs) (laughs) That's my favorite part of that movie. It never fails to to make me laugh. Um, And, I mean, you said the John Wayne one and the the 2004 version. Those are two, those are probably in, I, I love them equally for many different reasons. So whenever you want to talk about that, ooh. I can go, we can go off. <laughs> <laughs> That's the beauty of Josh, folks. You can go to any genre, any movie, and he's pretty much, I'm ready to go. I got something. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about any movie, but. Uh, <laughs> well, I mean, any movie genre, any movie genre, you, you are good to go. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, thank you. I'll, I'll accept that. I'll accept that. <laughs> now, since. But touch of evil, huh? So. Just before we get to that, though, there's a couple things you've done recently that have come out since we last oh. talked. And it'll still make sure oh, people okay. know you had, uh, you've been a couple of movies that have come out Saturnalia cave girl yes. from outer space. <laughs> yes. I'm very, very happy with that. We still have, I was going to post, um, there are still some Blu-rays remain. I don't know if you want me to plug stuff. Right plug, now, but, uh, plug. That's what you're here for. <laughs> plug, plug. We're here to talk about Chuck and Orson, but I, I will do shameless plugging. We have low stock alert on my Saturnalia special edition Blu-rays. If you want to go to www.gooeyfilms.com, I think it's yes, that sounds right. Because um, those are going fast. But if you don't want the Blu-ray, it is available on oldies.com, and they have a, a DVD. If you don't have a Blu-ray player. Uh, you want the Blu-ray yeah. because the Blu-ray's got behind-the-scenes type stuff and everything. I mean, come on. Thank it's, you. Yeah. Thank you. And the, the quality is superbly better. And there's this, I, I just, I really like the cover art that Mark Maddox did. So um, shameless plug to Mark Maddox, the man. Uh, but yeah, it's Saturnalia. I, I'm very happy. I, I, you've seen it, yeah? Yes. I own it. I yeah. got the Blu-ray. You own it. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Uh, your check is in the mail. Um, but I'm, I'm very happy with how that one turned out. I think it's, it's one of the closer films. I'm getting better, I think. Um, my original vision to the final film in and that transition is getting shorter and shorter. So I think Saturnalia is the one of the closest films I've made that it is closest to my original vision. So I'm happy with that. And and give people the, the quick couple sentence thing. What is the movie about? So they know. So Saturnalia, a Cape girl from outer space. It's about a, a down on his luck cartoonist named Melvin and he draws comic book characters. And so he drew this uh, beautiful cave girl from outer space named Saturnalia. And through wacky hijinks, she bursts from the paper and lands in real life. And crazy craziness ensues. Um, it's very wacky and funny. And, and I, I've heard very positive things about it. So I, it seems like people are enjoying it. It's fun. Oh, it is fun. It's enjoyable. I, I like it. It's, it's it's different than things you've done before, you know. It's, Absolutely, it's, yes. 
And yes, recently, <laughs> earlier this year, you won a little Lovecraftian. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Uh, it was uh, the Insmith School for Girls. And that is available from oldies.com. Or if you want to stream it, it's on Amazon Prime. Saturnalia is also on Amazon Prime um, if you want to stream it. Um, and that one, that one's a lot of fun. Um, Instrument School for Girls. We had a wonderful time. Shot all here in South Texas. <laughs> South Texas stands in for uh, Instrument. But uh, I'm very, I had a lot of fun working on that one. Um, and yeah, so thank, thanks for the shameless plug <laughs> if you love lovecraft and you love josh's films it's the hybrid it's the it's the love child you've been looking for <laughs> well thank you i appreciate that yeah I, i'm i'm happy with it i i yeah and I, i've heard very very nice things from lovecraft fans and that, that was big for me um reber clark shameless plug to reber clark my composer brilliant man he's a huge lovecraft guy and i would always go to him he was almost my expert it's like okay is this working for you how does this sound he's like well, i'm not sure about this oh this sounds good and um i've heard from lovecraft fans at least the ones that write to me and you know <laughs> or just comment uh that they enjoy it so that that's been nice to, to hear and of course I'll, both those both these films are composed by reber who's like the the in-house gooey films composer <laughs> i mean if, it, if there's a movie by gooey it seems to be composed by reber <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. He's 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 not going anywhere. Let's just knock on wood for a while. He, he's dynamite. He's composing Mantipus at uh, while we speak right now, uh, <clears throat> which should be out by the end of the year. We should see. Um, well, two films in one thing. year. Ooh, Gooey's yeah. Well, churning them out. <laughs> <laughs> well, and it's funny. Insmith School for Girls was the movie I made to take a break. From Mantipus. Mantipus has been going on for about five years now. And it was like, I, I need to take a break from Mantipus. Let me make another movie. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. I need to take a break from filming. So I'll just make another film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I've done it. <laughs> that was uh, for House of the Gorgon. I had to take a break from House of the Gorgon. I made The Fungus Among Us just to switch my brain off. Um, hey, it works for me. Uh, just, you know. And for switch, those switch gears for a second. And for those looking for other work that Josh has done, a lot of people don't realize that you're also in Frankenstein Mobster, Mark Redfield's podcast. Oh yes, <laughs> that's right. Yes, I mean nothing to write home about. I have like a few, few lines here or there. That don't, uh, but oh, that that's yeah, fabulous. Mark oh, Redfield on. production. I mean, come on, you're 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 now listed in the same credits with Daniel Roebuck and Richard Dizel. Who I've both had on the show. I mean, come on now. It's just you're talking about you're you're up there with count. You're you're there with what is it, Doctor um, Shocker and um, Count Gore Duvall. <laughs> okay, well, thank you. I'll I'll take I'll take the praise. Thank you. But and also, I also wanted to mention congratulations on your uh, Forey Award at Monster Patch. I mean, you talk about Daniel Rowe. He got one too. So you congratulations to you. There's your shameless plug. That's that's very very cool. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. And of course I found that about the trick. They give you the, the key to the executive washroom and then Danny and I both show up and he goes to give us a bucket and, you know, mop and we're like, okay, you guys got to clean it till next year's bash comes in. Exactly. Yeah. So um, that's, that's in the fine print. That's under the trophy. That's, that's a little fine print under the trophy, but uh, no, well-deserved and uh, congratulations. I wanted to, to say that. 
Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And on a little somber note, I also want to, um, all of our listeners, you know, and stuff like that, Josh has also gone through a lot of personal things this year um, with the passing of his father. I've never met Gus. Um, I, kn- I know you really well because I met you several times. And I said this to you, I believe, when we did our first interview, that I feel like I know your parents from knowing you, how, how they did the, such a job. Because, you know, we are products of our parents, you know, how they raised us, our mores. A lot of times or they're going to be there whether we like it or not. And they did such a wonderful job in raising you and stuff like that and doing such a good thing. And I've told you this before in that interview, either it was either in the during the interview or after we're done the interview, one or the other. And, um, you know, I'm really sorry. You know, I never had a chance to meet him and to hear the stuff that was said about him, what you wrote about him. There was things there that would make a book. I mean, it was, it was yeah. his life is, is a movie in its own. You know, it's, it's, it is something that would be wild to read and stuff. But again, I'm so sorry for, you, for, for his sudden passing. Well, thank you. I, I appreciate that. I, I really do. And um, for all the people that have reached out to me during that time, I, I do appreciate it. Uh, hard, I mean, but that's, that's part of life. And and um, the cool thing is he's, he's uh, his little cameos in my films, um, and he has a big part in, in my Theseus of the Minotaur. He plays the blind man Gregorius. I mean, he was a wonderful actor, and, and so he, he kind of lives, as, as with any actor that passes on, he has somewhat of an immortality through the film. So that's, that's a source of comfort for me, where it's like, I can, you know, watch Theseus and see him, you know. I'm, yeah, so, but anyway, thank you. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. I remember when I was talking to Victoria Price, and she was, before we did the interview, she had like a migraine or something, and she needed to like rest. So she wouldn't, it was at a Vincent Price Film Festival that Monster Bash was holding. So all the, all movies were Vincent Price movies. So she went into <laughs> the upper deck of the theater to sit back and take a nap because, as she said, she, her, she can hear her dad's voice, and it's so soothing to her that she just falls asleep, and it's such, it's, it's like, it wow. just relaxes her. And so during, when the movies were playing, she took a nap. Yeah. Oh, that's so cool. Wow. Because she's hearing her dad's voice, and it just puts her in a nice, relaxing thing. Of course, he's up there in the film doing this horrific thing to people, probably, because it's (laughs) it's Vincent Price movie. It was a lot of horror movies that were being shown during those four four movies that day. You were like, dude, did eight movies all together. But, I mean, it's just, you know, you just hear the voice, and it's just like that soothing. Some people have those sound machines, and she has. She can stick a movie in. And I think that's what's sometimes so cool when you are the child of somebody that's been in film or yeah. even a grandchild, even if you never got to meet the person, you're still able to do something that a lot of us can't do. And that is see yeah, them absolutely. and hear them. And it's, it's in the, so you have that with your father, thankfully, where you, you've um, basically have that period of time forever there to go yeah, back absolutely. to. Yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it's, hesitate to use, like I said, the word immortal, but it's, it's just kind of an immortality in a way. It's like, oh, let's, let's watch him at this year or this year. So that's so cool about Victoria. I hadn't heard that. That's, that's a great story. Yeah, it's just, well, I mean, you know, it's one of those things that's fortunate for some people to have. Uh, the rest of yeah, us, yeah. if we're lucky, we have Super 8, we can see him, but you can't hear him, you know, those old, those old whole yeah, movies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then when you go back beyond that, then it's pictures. and. Um, yeah, yeah. But it's, it's nice when you can get the moving pictures and the sound and audio. 
and so on. Absolutely. But again, my, our condolences to you and your family, you know, as, as you. you went through all that. Now, Thank uh, you. on those cheerful notes, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, it had to, we had to bring it up sooner or later. So we're going to switch into touch of evil. I'm going to play the trailer for it. So it gives people a yeah. little bit of an idea of what we're heading into. And then we're going to talk about this wonderful, wonderful film. This was her wedding night. Where was the man she had married? Who were these hoodlums? Hold her legs. Starring this outstanding cast, Charlton Heston, Janet Lee. I could love being corny if my husband were only cooperate. Orson Welles, co-starring Joseph Kalea, Hakim Tamirov, with guest stars Marlena Dietrich, Jaja Gabor. What are you trying to do? We're trying to strap you in the electric chair, boy. Only the offbeat original creative powers of Orson Welles could bring you so suspenseful, so gripping, so different a drama of love threatened by vengeance. Mike may be spoiling some of your... Mike? My husband, yeah. And if you're trying to scare me into calling him off, let me tell you something, Mr. Grandy. I may be scared, but he won't be. Of a struggle between titans. You framed that boy. Framed him! Of a manhunt like nothing you've ever experienced. A cop now. I'm a husband. What did you do with her? Where is my wife? My wife! Touch of evil. And I, Touch I, of evil. Luckily, I, my first time was watching it was for this podcast. I own the Blu-ray. I got the Blu-ray a couple oh. years ago, and it has all the versions. It has okay. the, the theatrical version, the preview version, and the one that was taken from his notes to put it together. So yeah. so I got so I got I got all the versions. All the versions. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the first time you you you've watched it. The, the one thing about doing a podcast about movies, you know, when you, when you buy a classic movie you hadn't seen before, sometimes you want to watch it right away. And other times, you know, it's going to come up. <laughs> yes. I, I, I wholeheartedly understand that. I mean, I have a whole stack of like, I will get to this. I know it will. So, but Oh, cool. Okay. So, so, all right. So it's fresh in your mind then. Oh yes. Yes. And it was, it was, um, I watched, I watched two of the versions. I didn't watch, I didn't watch all three. Uh, but okay. It, so it was, I didn't, I did not watch the preview version. Okay, good. That's the only one I haven't seen. So <laughs> we're on, we're on the same page. All right, good. <laughs> but for, for listeners, it's, it's out there readily available to buy. At least yes. it was, I'm not sure how much it is now. I mean, you never know these things go up and down in price, 
And well, and I know I, I heard. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, the the 4K version is supposed to be like dynamite. I haven't seen it yet. The 4K restoration or whatever they did, but even the Blu-ray looked pretty darn good. So, um, but apparently 4K people out there, I've heard it's top of the line, top quality. But um, sorry, continue. Oh no! But for those that don't want to pay to watch it, I did do a search. It is streaming without having ah. to pay for it. On PBS. Really? It's the theatrical version is on PBS. Uh, so okay. it's, I thought that was, I was like, PBS, does, it just blew my mind. So I'm not sure how long it's going to be out there after people listen to this, but it, it's, I, I was you're able to stream it on PBS for free. Cool. Hey. I'm not complaining. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. You got to take what you can get, especially, yeah. Um, Especially now in today's technological climate, we shouldn't be complaining. I mean, I shouldn't even be complaining. I had, was like the last generation with VHS tapes and, and stuff. But we have it so good now. <laughs> it's like you can stream it on PB. Oh, geez. Sometimes you have to, I mean, I'm one to talk. You have to wait for it to come out on v- or on TV or VHS. And the, the fact that everything's so available now. Um, if you want to see it, I'm sure there's a way you can see it. Yeah, but, yeah, back, um, back in your day, you whippersnapper. <laughs> Exactly, I know. Who am I to talk? <laughs> Back in my day, we had to look at the TV guide and hope exactly, that we got to see yeah. that movie again. And then we had to make notes <laughs> and remember these things. You youngsters nowadays can't even wait five minutes. We had to wait sometimes hey. years. <laughs> exactly, years. It's they just—I mean, going a little off topic. They just—they they just announced that big uh, Cushing, Peter Cushing set. Severin is releasing that, and there are movies on there that I, as a kid, those were like the holy grail. I thought Tender Dracula, which is supposed to be a really terrible, terrible movie. I've never seen it, but it was in a Peter Cushing book. I'm like, if I could ever find that movie, I will be the happiest man. And to come full circle, it's like, it's getting on a Blu-ray release. We have no reason to complain, us movie nerds. (laughs) But anyway, Touch of Evil. Um, So, preview, I mean, uh, theatrical cut and Okay, so for those that are listening that don't know this, um, oh, geez, we have all of the history. To go. How do we even start this? <laughs> or, or how do you want to go about this? Well, let's let's start so the, let's start at the beginning. I mean, basically, it was the book. Um, what was it? A um, badge of evil by Whit Masterson, which was optioned by what Universal, and they wanted to make mm-hmm. it a Charlton Heston production because he was coming off what film? What film, Josh? <laughs> uh, probably the Ten Commandments. The um, Ten Commandments, yes, and of yeah. course, and they did. They didn't know who to, they were t- t- trying to figure out who to direct it, and they already had an idea. They wanted Orson Welles to play Quinlan, and yes. so it was Charlton Heston that said, "We'll get him to direct it." <laughs> yes, yes, and they were at least. In, I reread. Uh, I have some of Charlton Heston. I mean, he published his journal. Charlton Heston did. And it's like day by day for 20 years, what he wrote down in his journal. And he wrote of that when he, he proposed the idea to the studio on, on the phone, he's like, why don't you get Orson Welles directed? He's kind of a good director. They like acted as if he had three heads. They're like, Oh, oh okay. It's like, you guys didn't think of that. <laughs> it's like that, that boggles my mind. I mean, of course, in retrospect, you're like, wait, they didn't ask him to direct. Anyway, they ended up, saying, yes, he can direct, and then Orson Welles completely took over and rewrote the script and made it into what it is 
now. And so, okay, now, now um, we, uh, they film it, they, uh, Orson starts editing it, and then he leaves um, the editing room to go down. From what I understand, he goes to Mexico to try and start raising funds for a Don Quixote movie that he wants Charlton Heston to star in. But he leaves the post of the editing, which always, even Charlton Heston is confused about that. He's like, why? Don't do that. What are you doing? You're, you're finished the movie, and he left halfway through. Anyway, uh, the studio finds out he's gone, watches the rough cut, and is they are very touchy on uh, – they don't like what they're seeing. It's, and to be fair, I mean, we can go into this later on. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll get into just how – what a weird freaking movie it is, just directorially. But anyway, the studio interferes. They bring back Charlton Heston and Janet Lee to, to shoot new scenes to, to help straighten out the story. They think the story is too confusing for an audience. And Charlton Heston doesn't want to shoot the new scenes, but reluctantly agrees because that's part of his contract. They shoot the new scenes, and a new editor comes in and completely changes a whole bunch of stuff. Orson comes back, sees what has happened, and this is, he writes a famous 58-page memo to the studio that says, and it's interesting because the memo isn't, it's politely done, he's obviously flustered, but he's not saying these new scenes suck. He feels that way, but he doesn't write it. He's like, if you're going to, I know you're going to add in these new scenes, that's okay, Let I'm working with what you're giving me. He's, he's almost very um what's the word diplomatic yeah that's a great he's very diplomatic and he goes okay i know you don't like my thing i understand that let me work with you and that's how the memo reads you're like wow this is a guy who's almost giving away his baby he's like let's make the best movie possible and um anyway uh the studio ends up releasing they kind of listen to some of his notes kind of ignore others and they released this really butchered version, which is 90, maybe you have the numbers, 96 minutes is the theatrical version, or 98 minutes, or something something around there. Yeah, it's around 90 minutes, you know, so it's... Yeah, yeah. And that's the version that goes out. Apparently, it, it's, uh, it's, I don't know, it's a B picture on, on a double bill with some other movie. It's not given a full release. Um, and... Even John Heston, in his journals, he writes that he went to go see it with an audience, the theatrical version. Excuse me. And he was like, oh, it just doesn't work. What, what is this? This is weird. Anyway, so fast forward, rumors about this film saying that it's a, a lost Orson Welles gem uh, starts circulating around the world. Um, Universal finds... Uh, some deleted scenes and throw that back into a, a release print in the 80s, I believe, and it's like a very long version. Anyway, someone comes up with the idea to make, to get Orson Welles' 58-page memo and actually follow his direction. And they get Walter Murch, the great editor, to be in charge of the editing, and that is, the reconstruction of that is, they don't they don't call it the director's cut, they call it the Orson Welles' cut, they call it uh, Oh, I don't know I'm what the official remember. title yeah. is. The there's, there's reconstruction, 
we, we can call it, we can, I call it, I call it the, the cut that follows his notes. Cause you can't really say it's the director's cut because. You, you exactly. Don't... Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the reconstruction, I guess, or like, uh, anyway. Um, and most of the, the notes, uh, are very simple, but they man, do they make a big impact? I think a lot of people think, uh, um, so we, we can get into that anyway. So that's, trying to highlight for those that don't know the, the two versions we will be talking because on the blu-ray you can see the original butchered version the theatrical cut and then the reconstruction they have the preview version but i haven't watched that one uh, because i just don't think there's much to see new in that might be wrong but uh, anyway um yeah so there's this <laughs> that, that is good enough history <laughs> yeah and, and i think and also i remember it gives people an idea of again a movie that's diff so different than what was being put out that that's always causes the suits. I always you know as I always the listeners I always like to call them the suits, the studio, whatever you want to do. The suits, yeah. yeah they're yeah. all they're all like, oh, but this has never been done before. We don't know if audiences are smart enough to get this, and how could mm-hmm. they figure it out? And of course, this uh, this happens to Orson Welles so many times in his career where he's ahead of the game, and. And, and, and sometimes it, it, the studio is correct in that. It th- doesn't work out in the box office. I mean, and uh, because audiences were like, what? But then the other filmmakers see it and they realize, oh, and then it just spirals down the road. And then it's, and you can go backwards in time and you can say, oh, this came from, this was begot from this, from begot from that. And it all comes back to this particular yeah. work. And, uh, and that's, that's the beauty. So yes, it was it possibly was not, the box office smash or hit of the time, but it was um, retrospectively something that was really ahead of time and caused a lot of things to happen. And yeah, you know, that kind of thing. Of course, this film is noted for so many different things and it's just the the cinematography is something with, with Russell Meddy. It's, it's breathtaking how he was able to set shots up and, it just kind of reminds me when I watch films like 12 Angry Men. Um, there's films, yeah. there's certain films I like to watch over and over because you're watching the main action and now you're watching the secondary and the tertiary things that are going on in the scene that you're not focusing on in that first viewing. And so this is one of those films, I think, that is with repeat viewings, you, learn, you, you get even more out of the film. And to me, that's the sign of a film that is great. When you can watch it again and again, you're always learning something new and different and you're not bored with it where to me, a good film is one. Yeah, it was, it, it, it's enjoyable, but it, it will not always hold up forever in the constant viewings, but great films, Absolutely. they can be viewed almost endlessly. I think, even, but I shouldn't say endlessly. Cause I mean, even if you're watching a great film, if you watch it a hundred times in a row in an endless loop, you're going to be like driven, driven mad. <laughs> No, but I, I know what you mean. That there's, there's, uh, uh, and I feel this about. I mean, Citizen Kane too, which I guess we didn't talk about. But uh, it, it is so. Touch of Evil is so rich. I, it's, it's like a six course meal. And and because uh, I, I, in preparation for this podcast, I watched the, the theatrical cut and then I watched the the reconstruction back to back. And I, it wasn't tiring or anything. I was excited to watch. I was like, okay, let's watch it again. There's just so much going on uh, in every frame. It's like, wait, huh, huh, huh? And, and the story is constantly moving around. I, uh, uh, 
So you watching it for the first time, did just honest reactions? Did, did, it, did it feel like a film from 1958? As a your opinion? No, no, I, I really enjoy. While I was watching that, literally the opening sequence has you on the edge of your seat because you know what's going to happen. Yeah. You just don't know when it's going to happen. That tension, that weaving in and out of, and for listeners that have not seen the classic, classic opening sequence, a bomb is put yeah. in the trunk of a car. You see that right off the bat. You see that the timer is set for just a couple of minutes, you know, at the most, you don't, cause mm-hmm. it's, it's one of those old, um, egg timer type timer. So you can't really see yeah, the exact yeah. time, but you know, it's, <laughs> you know, it's a little bit and this car is being driven and it's going friend. There's parts where there's a person moving a baby stroller. There's parts where it's other people. And you're just like, Oh no, don't blow up now. Then suddenly there's Charlton Heston and Janet Lee just walking in and out by the car. They're going through mm-hmm. the, the, the border check boy, boy. That's the one thing that doesn't hold up in this film is how you can cross the border so easily. <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a. Even, I don't know what ver- I don't know what version it is, but uh, Charles Hester was like, you know, this is the the one border in the world where there's not one gun emplacement. He says some, something, or it's like it's just a strip of land and there's no cops or gun emplacement. I was like, oh wow, how how times have changed. But uh, yeah, that first shot, the whole thing uh, again for people who are probably listening to this, they already know this, but in case there's you know two that don't. Um, that first sheen with the bomb being put in the car is made as one shot, which, I mean, we take for granted now. Ah, you know, digital and, you know, you can shoot anything for as long as you want. This was so ahead of its time. It was like, we're going to show all of this and we're going to keep the cameras going to move the entire time. We're going to be on a crane. We're going to see above houses, below houses. We're going to be on the street. Just the sheer... <laughs> balls of Orson Welles, I guess you could say, or just the, the sheer madness of, of Orson Welles. Says, We're going to show this in one shot. That that just, that alone is worth watching it. It's like, watch the first thing, all right, that's, I'm set. At least for, in terms of 1958, and that was the point I was trying to get at. It just, it's so fresh, even now in, what are we, 2023? It's like, this still holds up. It's just like a cracking piece of cinema. I mean, you, you you're not bored once during it. It's like, okay, what's it's, it's fascinating. And the whole time I'm watching, I kept thinking, I hope you don't know what's going to happen. And, yeah. and, and, and being that it's a, it's a, it's a, the type of film it is, you know, one of the last nor films, nor film, whatever, nor, how do you, how do you say nor or nor? Noir. Noir. Film noir. Film noir. <laughs> it's, you know, they, they can have really sad endings or normal endings. So you don't know where this is going to yeah. go because that type of film. And, yeah. and I, and I was attached to certain characters so well that I was just like, oh, please, please don't go this direction. You know, don't go, don't go, yeah. don't go this route or that. I don't want to spoil how it ends, but it's just, uh, you know, you're just, you're just like, Oh, which tells you, you, you're drawn in um, yeah. so well with it. And it's, it's shot in such a way with, perspectives changing with who you're following. It's like, it's almost like a, yeah. a relay race where they're passing the batons. And, but, but unlike a relay race where it's a different runner each time, the other guys come back in to take the baton again. You know, it's, it's like they're, yeah. They're, yeah. And I find that fascinating to watch, but the opening scene was not my favorite scene. Oh, my, mine either. It's, it's fascinating as, as a technical piece, but there's this, I mean, you could point to shots throughout the whole movie. What, what was your favorite scene? When they're in Sanchez's apartment. Yeah, that's my favorite scene. <laughs> that, 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 that is just, 
I, I mean, you're a filmmaker, so I'm sure you're going to come out with a different approach than I would. But just from what I've read, that was the first scene that they shot, the first thing. They marked it out. They had rehearsals for a couple weeks, and Orson Welles, according to Janet Lee, was very open to getting feedback from people during the rehearsal thing, really getting the input from the actors um, and how they're going to do certain things. And they had things marked so well and ready to go that they filmed it from like 5.30 in the evening to like a half hour to an hour, and they got 12 minutes filmed, which... I mean, to, to me, I'm flabbergasted because you're talking about something that's that's complicated, claustrophobic, where you just feel the tension going on in that room. Tons of extras in there, you know, for a small thing. I shouldn't say tons, but there's like a significant amount of extras. The shadowing, the way the lighting was set up, the way, it, and it sets up all the main characters, if you, you know, it, it's, that are all, all the little storylines are interwoven pretty much in that little spot for the most part. And I'm just like, when I found that out, I was, I, I was, my jaw literally hit the floor. And I can only imagine you as a filmmaker knowing that and having to go through all that, you know, yourself, um, because you have a micro budget, but to know that a major film, it, it, and Orson Welles, you know, cause you hear these reputations of him being like, Oh, he takes forever to do these filmings and all this other stuff. But I think a lot of it had to do with budget. You know, I don't know a ton about the thing, but, it just shows you when he he's on his game, it's like, boom, boom, boom. We got it all in the can. And that, that was yeah. gold, gold. He was, he was like, yeah. he was like Rumpelstiltskin spinning straw in the gold with that film. Yeah. And it, it's funny. It's funny. You bring up that, that scene because everyone talks about the opening scene. No one talks about that. I'm like, this is so much more dynamic than that opening shot. Because it's another one, it's 12 minutes of just an uninterrupted take, and the camera moves into another room, the camera goes like this, and no one is blocking each It's choreographed so expertly, and, and the lighting, you're, no one's blocking each other's lights. Like, that That took a lot of rehearsal, and just to get it right, and so it appears so effortless. It's like, oh, yes, this is, and um, uh, to add on to your story about, about them, they rehearsed for so long, and they, they had, as they were rehearsing, there was studio brass in the studio. The suits, like you said, uh, crossed, their arms crossed. Like, they haven't filmed one thing. They haven't, you know, the, the day is going to end. We, we want to see some dailies. And they were pushing Orson. He's like, no, let, let's film something. He's like, we're not ready. We're not ready. They do the take. They get the 12 minutes. And he goes, okay. With that, he, like, has a clipboard. And he goes, all right, we are now two days ahead of schedule <laughs> because we did all of these. We did, two, uh, you know, 12 minutes in one shot. We didn't need close-ups. We didn't need to cut away. We didn't need new setups. We didn't need to change the lighting. We did it all in one. We're two days ahead of schedule. Let's keep going. And everyone was uh, flabbergasted. But I, I wonder, because it's, it's that scene and just, I mean, the whole shape of the movie is so strange. And the fact that it's shot on so much location, I think, is a big deal. Like, they're, they're you can tell... The scenes in that the studio went back and reshot because a lot of the uh, stuff where they're driving in the cars is actually driving in a car. They they hook up a, a camera to the car and it is like that scene with Heston and the guy from the DA's office. They're going down the alleyway really quick and it's uh, actually shooting in a real car. And then there's another scene 
uh, earlier on with Heston and Janet Lee in the reconstruction, at least, uh, which was a scene that the studio went back and reshot after Orson left. And it's the classic 50s. We're on a studio lot and we're in a car and we have the, the projected background behind us. And it just it stands out so bad because it's like, okay, you know this isn't <laughs> Orson Welles. Every other car scene is they're cramped. You can see the people like the cameraman's like cramped in the back seat filming the front or they have it strapped to the the hood of the car. Um, and anyway, my point being, all of these things that we kind of take for granted now as, as modern audiences, I'm sure being astute and very conservative at Universal Studios watching the rough cut, I mean, like, how it, it must have been such a mind trip to see, wait, you're outside? This doesn't flow like a movie. You're not, there's no, you know, heroes music coming in. It's, it's so avant-garde and different and, and one, that's what makes it so visceral. I can only imagine how the suits were watching it and why they wanted to change it and meddle with it. Because it, it's even now it's, it's fresh, um, but I can imagine how, how it looked then. You know what I mean? This had to, I mean, this had to be totally mind blowing to an audience watching yeah. it in 1958. Even that that version that went out which yeah. is the first version I saw. And I'm like, I'm, again, I'm on the edge of my seat. I'm I'm just being drawn in. And yes. to know, you know, how he's filming it and doing these different things. And I think from what I've read, that was one of the few things that he shot on a set. Everything else was shot in locations. But the apartment yeah, yeah. scene was a set scene, which which it had to be because of, obviously they had to have the walls removed in order to make the camp, in order to be able to do what they wanted to do with that claustrophobic yes, yes. feeling and they get it, they get it that way. But the lighting is mm-hmm. so impressive and the way, the way the angles are shooting up. So it makes it even more claustrophobic because you're seeing the shadows of the people on the ceiling and the walls, which makes it feel like there's even more people in the room. And it, as yeah, people are yeah. coming in and in, it gets tighter and tighter and then eventually, as the scene starts to end, it gets you know people start to funnel out, and then you have that um, really when it's just a couple people left. Though there is one other person still in the room, we're just not seeing him on the camera at the time. Um, but when when Vargas and Orson and or, and and Quinlan have their confrontation in the doorway, when Vargas yeah. comes right out and says, "You you have framed this guy, you set him up, and you, you know you him. did." Yes, framed him. Oh yeah, yeah. It's 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 just dynamite. <laughs> I hate to, to hype up a movie for people who haven't seen it, but this is it's really good stuff. Um, even the, the 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 just I was trying to again put myself in the feet of an audience watching it. How weird it must have been, where they're going into the hotel and it's uh, Vargas has brought in the DA's office and the other people. And he's like, okay, you guys get in the elevator. I'll meet you up upstairs in the, the, on the second floor. I'll take the stairs. And the camera gets into the elevator with these guys and the elevator closes and the elevator actually goes up. So that means they're actually handheld camera in this real location. And I just imagine people watching this expecting those fake sets or, you know, honey, I'm home, Lucy, I'm home. And just said that, that false, which I love, by the way. I love that that fake studio. It's, it's perfectly lit and, you know, very little shadows. And, just, it, again, it must have just been such a weird disconnect. 
for people watching where it's like, okay, is, is this good? Is this bad? I, this is uncomfortable for me as an audience. I don't feel safe. Well, I mean, that's kind of the, <laughs> the point. Um, and I, it, I, it just helps the, the mood. Like you said, you don't know where this story is going. Is, is Vargas actually going to, even towards the end, not to give, give things away, but uh, there's moments where you're like, wait, is this going to turn on its head too? Is this a, well, huh? It, it, oh, it, it shapes to be that way. And it's, it's just a great movie-going experience. With portrayal after portrayal after portrayal going through this movie, I mean, it's just like, and that's what I mean. You just don't know what's going to happen. It's like this guy's portrayed this guy, who's portrayed that guy, and we'll just, you know, it's, it's yeah, yeah. But uh, he's teaming up with him. He's going to turn on him. He's oh, this, oh, yeah. But to let people know, Charlton Heston plays Vargas, who is the um, yeah, like the like the one of the leading prosecutors, I guess, in um, Mexico, who's going after a, a drug. Um, kingpin type thing, and has and, and yes. it's supposed to be testifying him on a few days, and um, the family is trying to stop him from testifying, but they don't want to kill him because then it would be figured out, and then the and the guy will still get you know suffer repercussions. So they're trying to do it in a way to um, take away his power by um, setting up a, a thing where they're going to smear him and his new wife, who's played by Janet yeah. Lee. Um, and they just literally got married prior to the movie starting because this is like they're, 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 they're supposed to be the start of their honeymoon, and then the bomb goes off and everything goes to hell in a handbasket, so to speak. And Orson Welles plays this legendary in the, their community police captain, Quinlan. And it's just, just staying with the three leads. I think this is yeah. this has got to be Orson Welles one of his best performances. I mean, it's 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 in his top three. I mean, it's got to be in his top three for everybody. This this is just amazing. I was blown away that the way he played this despicable, unlikable, unattractive. He looks terrible, and he's de by design. <laughs> my my blood pressure rises just watching him in this movie. I'm like. Do you want to? Do you need to sit down, Orson? I mean, I know that's the character. Like Hank, sit down, please. You're you're about to keel over with just how he's. It's just the the, the act. It, it's oh, it's the makeup on him. I mean, he's he's a big guy, but I'm sure they put extra stuff just to make him extra big. And the the, the delivery of some of his lines. I'm like he's he's like one sentence away from a heart attack. It's it's you cannot not look at him anytime he's on screen. My focus is. Even watching both versions back to back, I'm like, I can't not watch him. He's he's a marvel to, to watch, and so many great lines. I, I really like that. Uh, I, I want to I want to prove to you I'm not talking out of the back of my neck. <clears throat> and like, it's it's just it's gross and slimy, and, and oh, it's I I don't drink. You know how my wife died, right? Well, well, well she was strangled, Pete. Oh, it's, it's yeah, masterful. There's a great. I'm sure you, you you've heard this. A great story that um, this was Orson Welles' first movie in Hollywood after a after a long while. He went to Europe after Kane and and uh, Lady from Shanghai, I think, and spent a lot of years in in Europe and and was coming back. This was his first big movie back in in Hollywood, and um, they were filming on set. He was in this big fat suit and the awful makeup, and he was scheduled to go to a party. Have you heard this? No, no, uh, I haven't heard it. 
he was scheduled to go to a Hollywood party, like a welcoming back. Welcome back, Orson. We want uh, to Hollywood. Right after filming, he was going to this party, and he didn't have time to take off his makeup. So he's still in the fat suit and still with the makeup and everything. And they go, and again, who knows what these Hollywood, these are Hollywood legends, but it's one story to tell anyway. So who knows if this happens? But he uh, gets into the car, gets dropped off at the hotel party, and he walks in in this awful makeup where he looks terrible and fat. And people are like, hey, welcome back, Orson. You look great. You, you haven't changed a bit. And he's like, guys, <laughs> like now I know you're lying because I'm under all this heavy makeup. Um, but yeah, he, he looks terrible. And he knows he looks terrible, and he's like reveling in how awful he looks. I mean, it's like one of those, the, the actors who get to play something that's completely not themselves, and, and he's just having way too much fun and just really stealing this movie <laughs> from Charlton Heston and Janet Lee. He's like, I'm going to run away with this movie. And he, he just from an acting standpoint, now don't, don't even talk about the director, just from the acting, God, it's, it's a masterful class in what you can do. I, I swear to God, I think you could smell the sweat and the yes. stink on them. You know, yes. it, it's just like you're looking uh, at them, and when they do close-ups, it's like you, you feel like you're, you're repulsed so much. You, you, I felt like I was smelling something really bad, and even though it's not smell-o-vision, yeah. you know, it's just you just know, you know what I mean. It's when you see a movie and they've got I, it absolutely. portrayed so well, and we've all experienced certain aromas in our life, you're able to mm-hmm. put that sense there even though it's not there. So to speak, it's yeah. the suggestion of it all is put there. He's he's walking around just like taking huge bites out of the candy bar at the beginning. I'm like, ah, this is like it's probably all melted and gross. And this is this is cinema, guys. This is cinema. <laughs> it's, yeah, I you said he's in the, that's in the top three. I that's that's my favorite Orson Welles performance. I mean, I bar none. That's Hank Quinlan is wow. Well, so I haven't uh, seen I, mean, every, I haven't could, seen all of his movies. That's why I'm, I'm le- hesitant to say it's number. It's the best I've seen of him so far. But so I know far, fair enough for me. But I know other people will be yeah. like, "Oh no, this one's better now." That's why I'm saying top three for all the other people. But for me, fair enough. This is the best I've seen. But I haven't seen everything. And um, yeah, yeah, me too, me too. But after, so far, that's 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 fair. So far, this is the best Orson Welles performance. Oh. And even the way, just the way he's shot, I mean, here I am going into filmmaker mode, just the camera is low at sometimes, and oh, oh, well, the, one of my favorite shots in the movie, and I'm sure you, you might have noticed this, they, he's, well, spoiler, do we talk spoilers? There, there's a scene where he's going after someone, he's going to kill someone. Um, spoiler, Hank Quinlan is... I think, we're just not going to spoil the ending, but I think you can talk about that one. You're talking about the um, the... the the seedy motel room sequence. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I won't get into specifics. He's going to kill someone in, it's another betrayal, and it's like, oh, snap, he's, he's turning on him. And But there's one shot where, I mean, Orson Welles is this big freaking, or at least Hank Quinlan is this big guy, and the way it is, it, he's going after his prey, and there's, a, there's an arch in the room, and Orson Welles, like, leans under the arch and is coming right at the camera. The camera's going towards him and there's no light, but he's wearing a hat and the hat is obscuring his eyes. So you don't see any eyes. It's just this huge mass coming at you. And I was lucky enough to, here I get to, you know, be all cool. I was lucky enough for the first time, the first time I saw this movie, I saw it in the theater. They had a re-release. It was, I was in New York and they showed it. 
and I got to see the theatrical cut for the first time in the theater. And when that scene happened, where he that shot happened, where he came towards the camera, I literally went. I felt the back of my seat because it just felt like he was coming right at. And I rarely had that in a movie. I was like that. That was a frightening. <laughs> that's a frightening shot. There are some movies. I'm sure you know this boy. Like there's 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 a villain, and you're like, ah, okay, it's the Bond villain. I'm not scared of, of you. Like, I'm trying to think of a good example. Like, I think I, I agree with you. He's a villain that is a very realistic villain. And that's the thing. This like, is one This is one that everybody knows they can possibly encounter or have encountered yeah. without even knowing. He is, he is, because yeah. he's not, is he trying to dominate the world? Is he trying to take, no, he is a villain and he's one of the worst villains you can imagine in the world in that he's a villain who doesn't think he's a villain because He's like, I know yeah. they're bad, and I'm going to set mm-hmm. them up so they suffer. Reper- they, 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 I'm framing them because yeah. I know they're bad, and a lot of his hunches are true, but how he goes yeah. about yeah. doing it is so unethical and so unlawful, mm-hmm. and he's so corrupt about it. But it's just it's so it's it's kind of like he's setting things up, and now of course. The one thing he does set he does set up people that are innocent also, as we find out during this movie. So it's not all but then now he's trying to save his own skin, so to speak. Yeah, um, yeah. But yeah. so he's not so you can't always say, Oh, he only frames the bad people. He's you know, you know, he how many how many good people that were also possibly catching on to what was going on did he did exactly, he did exactly. he set up? Yeah, yeah. He's 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 you can't what he does in the movie, his actions in the movie kind of tell you that, okay, well, how many other people got swept under the rug in this manner? Um, I was going to say, just to add on to my point, uh, the uh, he's a villain that if I was alone in a room with him, I would be terrified. There's not many movie villains where I was like, ah, okay, I see. Like maybe some of the Bond villains. Like, I'm not scared of you. This guy is like, oh, he can, you know, kill me by snapping me in two with just his fingernails. Like, you know, it, he's, he's a frightening and anyway, that shot of him coming lumbering towards the camera, like the big elephant that he is, that, that's a frightening shot. That's one of my favorite shots in the movie. Oh, and he shows how strong he is by what he does later, you know, to, to him. Yeah, another. yeah. And speaking of shows of strength, Charlton Heston's Vargas, when he's in the um, the saloon scene <laughs> after he's trying to find out what's going on with his wife, which um, yeah. you might some people might have heard the dialogue in the trailer. He says, I'm not a cop now. I'm a... I'm a husband and he's my wife, my wife. And he's, Don't disturb me, you couldn't see it in the trailer or in the movie, but you can look it up. He literally is picking this one guy, this one guy up in one arm and he is just take going to town with him all along this bar. It's like, he picked yeah, him up. Like yeah. he's nothing, a, a full grown yeah, man. Yeah. He's just like picking him up. He's like, Hey, you're my meat shield. I'm just going into the, you yeah. know, as he's doing his rant and rage and, and you're just like, yeah. holy mackerel. I mean, you talk about, and then guys, guys try to fight them. They're, they're finding out. No, 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 no. There, there's not enough of you. <laughs> and yeah, exactly. And it's, it's so rewarding as an audience. Cause he goes after one of the main leaders of the, the young gang. And, uh, he's, he's like blows the, the, the gang member throw, uh, blows smoke in Vargas's face and Vargas is like, yeah, okay, I've had enough. And just like slams him right up against the wall. And as an audience, you're like, finally, this guy gets his ass kicked. Let's, <laughs> let's do it. Let's get him. Chuck, go. 
puts his head into a jukebox. I mean, you know, it's a jukebox. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Okay. We've had enough of this. And he's been terrorizing his wife the whole time. You want to see him, you know, get, get, uh, get beat up and finally get bank struck. But yeah, there's, uh, he, he pushes, um, the whole bar goes over, but even before the, the bar goes, uh, Vargas pushes the guy up and I like, I feel it in my back. Even cause you, he pushes the guy up against the bar, and the whole bar shifts. And you're like, "Oh, that's that's not a <laughs> that's not CGI. Someone's actually getting hurt there." That that's uh, yeah. Oh, oh, I hope that stunt guy thing. got his money. Got a good, got a good check that day because he earned I, it. He ooh, earned ooh, it. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully ooh, they put a pad. The, Hopefully they put a pad on some of those areas of his back that were getting like pushed right in, so it didn't hurt him something. as much. But it's like, ooh, please, yeah, ooh, ooh, ooh. But uh, I enjoyed I mean, I enjoyed Charlton Heston in his role, but I don't think it's his best role that I've seen him in. But again, he's playing the protagonist, and as we know in a lot of movies, the protagonist not always has the, the most interesting storyline. I'm um, going through yeah, it, unlike yeah. the antagonist with Orson's character having just just I mean, basically he's getting all the all the great scenes and lines, yeah. which is typical in a, in a lot of movies. But I really enjoyed his. It's like you're finally waiting for this guy, this cold, calculating guy, to finally lose it. And he finally yeah, yeah. loses it. And you're like, finally. Thank God. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> there, there he is. There's Charles Manson. Uh, well, and even later on, in some, some older interview, um, old, later interview from, from the movie's production, uh, Heston says, he goes, uh, yeah, as soon as Orson became the director, he rewrote the script and started doing all his things. And he goes, and he made his part bigger than Vargas's. He's like, which is okay, I understood. And he said, like, the, 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 apparently, according to him in that interview, that the shift away from Vargas to make uh, Quinlan the more, you know, interesting character was part of Orson's design. But it makes for a better movie. I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of that, that, like you said, that the hero needs to be the hero. And the antagonist is always the more interesting. I mean, usually in the Bond films, it's like the villain is more interesting than Bond. I mean, we, that just goes with. And but man, is Hank Quinlan so much more fun to watch? <laughs> His descent into madness, basically. Also, from what I read, one of the big things that they changed in the book was that Charlton Heston's character was not Mexican; he was American in the book. Ah. Um, it was Mike something or other. And um, the, one of the things he changed was to make him Mexican so he can have in that um, dynamic of the racial tension yes. and Absolutely. the other issues going on. And because Qu- because Quinlan, you could just come out and say, he's out and out racist. I mean, he, he, he's on a oh, border he's town okay. and he just doesn't like the Mexican yeah, people Mexican. at all. Yeah. You know, it's like, <laughs> yeah. um, and, and, and he doesn't hide it you know, and that kind of thing at all. It's just, it's just there. It's all, it's all out and about. People know this is, your, this is what you're getting with this guy. And, uh, yeah, yeah. And absolutely. I think it makes, it makes for a more interesting movie by him doing that switches in the screenplay, you know, from yeah, the thing. So I, I think absolutely. it works. Yeah. I, I completely agree with you. And I, I know there are, there might be some audiences members out there who, who are like, wait, Trump, I think in the, uh, the movie, Tim Burton's Ed Wood, um, Johnny Depp runs into Orson Welles in the movie. Johnny Depp adds Ed Wood meets Orson Welles. And Johnny, uh, Ed Wood is like, so Orson, what are you doing? He's like, well, you know, Universal wants me to make a thriller where they want Charlton Heston to play a Mexican. And that's played for laughs 
And I, I know there, there may be some audience members out there that are like, wait, Charlton Heston is a Mexican? I think if you can just accept that, he's honestly fine. And, and it's not like they're making fun of, he's not making fun of the Mexicans by, by playing that. I think if you can just accept that, maybe some of the weird, awkward <laughs> uh, Spanish words that he, he uses, uh, ¿Qué pasó? It's like one of his first lines. But all right, Charlton, but... Um, I think if you can get past that, it works so much better. And he's really good. I know it's not his best role, but he's he's turns in a fine performance. Um, and I like you said, it's I think it's very important to the plot. That's just, I didn't know that about the book that he was American and they made him that it makes it so much more dynamic because it's it's the Mexican cop versus the, the racist American cop. It's it's wonderful. Oh yeah, what do you think? It's not wonderful, but it's. I know what you mean. I know what you. We're talking about and making for, because because movies you want drama, you want tension, you want that extra stuff. So it it adds wonderful dimensions to characters and and storylines that can get portrayed out that are not the main theme, but it is there, you know, to play with. Absolutely. And they also do something because then they have the interracial marriage between yeah, his character yeah. and his wife, you know, played by Janet Lee. And what did you think of Janet Lee? Because she, she was the, the female star of the movie. She's wonderful. I mean, and, and people have always tied this film to Psycho, which is two years later in 1960, where it's like she's the, the lovely, you know, wife or, or girlfriend, and she ends up at a hotel and in her underwear and it's just the interesting parallels between the two she's in danger in the hotel in, in both films but I, I i always enjoy her she's she's fine so, uh, if i could make any but this is more of a screenwriting thing it always bugs me and maybe you'll you'll agree that uh she's walking home and or walking to the hotel and she gets accosted in the street by these punks that are working for the the, the is it the grandy family right the, yes the, yes and, yeah and she gets the letter, and, and uh, they hand her a piece of paper, and it says, please follow this young man. He has something for your uh, husband. And she goes, well, what do I got to lose? I, I think that's more of a screenplay problem I, but I, that always bugs me. It's like, really? Are you that dumb? <laughs> uh, Susie? Really, Susie? Um, but, I mean, she, she plays it. And she holds her own. She goes, So she follows the, the punks into this other place, and she meets Uncle Joe Grandy, who's uh, Akeem, what, what's his name? The actor? Oh, uh, Akeem, Akeem, Akeem Tamarov. Or Tamarov. Tamarov. I mean, talk, yeah, Akeem Tamarov. And talk about stealing scenes. That guy is wonderful in this film. And he's just, he, another one you just can't stop watching. Um, and my point being, oh, so that, that she, so he's masterful acting and he's this you know, slimy gangster, anything. And she's holding her own against him, and you believe it. She's like, yeah, he's, they're having a scene, and everything she says, she's like, yeah. It's like, well, you know, you don't want to mess with my husband. Yeah. And she goes, yeah. And she goes right back at him, and there's a nice, she holds her own. It's, it's, it's She's not just a, a pretty face, or she's not just, you know, the 50s damsel. I mean, she does eventually become that, but she holds her own in the, those early scenes. It's, it's She's great. Oh, yeah. What do you think? Well, I like what she says. I might be scared, but my husband's not scared, you know, and yeah, that kind of stuff. She's exactly. like, yeah, yes, yeah. Yes. you know, but it shows when she starts doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I think her character is supposed to be from like Philadelphia or something like that. So it shows that she might've had yeah. 
but you wonder her, it makes you wonder about her backstory. Like, okay, she's dealt with this, which goes back to the line you're saying, which is like, oh, what do I got to lose going with these two guys? You, it's, it shows later on that she has some street smarts. You'd yeah, think, yeah, that's, but yet, that's why yeah. would you walk into this obvious thing? And then she yeah. does get, there's still, still blackmail things up because they set up the picture and they send her the thing with the picture and she doesn't tell Vargas about her husband about it at all. She keeps it quiet and yeah. it doesn't really play out, but she realizes what's going on that they're trying to yeah. set up a smear. And that's when she decides not to leave, but to stay in the town because yeah. she was going to take the plane. She says, no, no, I'm not going to go. Um, and that kind of stuff. So her character is interesting because for a good portion of the movie, she's not with Charlton Heston. She's off on her own. Yeah. 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 And, and, uh, you're right. I looking at it through that lens that she has street smarts in that, that first scene. I was like, okay, yeah, I could kind of forget. It's, it's still, I, me, it's, it still feels a little clunky. It's like, really, are you really, you have the street smarts. You should know not to follow a random man into a room, but the movie is so good. I'll let that one slide. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's what it, I mean, it makes it more baffling. Oh, I just want to correct myself. The the in the book, yes. the character's name was um that uh, instead of being Mitt Miguel Vargas, it was Mitch Holt. Mitch Holt. Really? Yep. And, Vargas. And according to what they're saying here, um, Wells renamed the protagonist, you know, for stating that he made the character a Mexican for political reasons. I wanted to show how Tijuana and the border towns are corrupted by all sorts of mishmash publicity, more or less about American relationship, public you know, publicity, more or less about American relationship relations. Wow. Wow. So you can even, I mean, directorially it's great, but even like politically he's saying something. I mean, and that's, there's, I was just listening to the, some of the special features commentary stuff on the, on the DVD that, that uh, they showed the, the, the film early on as a preview to, to the audience, the, the studio suits, and that some lady got up, and again, who knows if this is Hollywood legend hearsay or whatever, but it's, again, it's a good story, that she went up to one of the suits and said, this is the ugliest or the dirty, she said something, this is the ugliest, dirtiest, darkest film I've ever seen, and slapped the studio head. And you can see, again, well, that's part of the, the film noir thing, but I guess part of the way it's shot and Orson being so gross, that there are no, there's good guys, but there's a lot of gray area. So I'm sure, again, like those people expecting a good guy, bad, good cop, bad guy getting arrested and living due to the fact that it's like a respected official is all corrupt. Again, that maybe that's the one area that, and that political weirdness, it, it's, the good guy is, is, you know, working for the Mexicans. Like, so does that mean that the Americans are, it, it's so wonderfully electric. Uh, and again, for audiences that are expecting a nice, you know, gun smoke episode or something, it's like this. This must have been <laughs> what a wake up call. Not to disparage gun smoke, I love gun smoke, <laughs> but I think you know what I mean. Well, the one thing Vargas mentions that when he's talking to his wife about it, and when he says we're in a border town, things are always like this way in a border town. Like it's it's all yeah Because yeah, yeah. I think he's originally from Mexico City, so he's used to being in a yeah more metropolitan area, but he's dealt with the border town issues. And I think that's what it's trying to say is, is that when you get to these, these areas, um, a lot, the gray is very gray. You know, it's, it's not as black and yeah, white. It's yeah. all gray and, and this type of thing. Yeah. And where do you go? But, but Vargas isn't always the smartest guy in the shed. 
because he does when he, when they're picking certain places for his wife to stay, he seems to always be picking places that are owned by the bad guys. <laughs> I know. Yeah, that's the other part where it's, uh, there's another line that he says where he's like, "We need to get into the Hall of Records." And he's like, "All right," and, and so it's Vargas and and his friend who's working for the DA, or he's he's an American guy. Anyway, uh, he's like, "Let me show you Vargas the, the Hall of Records." And, Vargas has this line and it just it's just like ice down my back. I'm like, oh, he goes, well, I hope this won't take too long. I need to get back to my wife. Meanwhile, his wife's getting terrorized in the hotel, and it's such a throw. It, it just oh, it's, again, we let it slide. But I'm like, come on, Vargas, just use your common sense. Think you need to go. Of course, in his mind, she's perfectly safe. He doesn't know all of this stuff, so we'll we'll, we'll let it slide. <laughs> and also, you're in. This happens to people. I look at him as a workaholic type character. His character, yeah, and absolutely. he's got this big thing going on and he knows he smells the corruption from a mile away from Quinlan. And I love early oh, on yeah. when Quinlan shows up, it's like, Oh, our legendary captain Quinlan. He goes, Oh, I've been looking forward to meeting him. And I don't know what character says this. And I don't know if the guy had more than this line. I have to rewatch it again, but he goes, yeah, you, I don't know if he's like, I'm really looking forward to this. No, you're not. You know, something like that. You're not really it, looking it, forward it, to it. it. Yeah, it's it's Joseph Cotton. Funny enough, on like he has two little scenes, and I want to say, and again, I can't confirm this. Maybe it can be confirmed, but since he was an old Orson Welles trooper, like the Orson just kind of like slipped him in, like just I'm going to cast my friend because he has that scene. He has a scene in the jail, but it's, yeah, you're right. He's like, oh, I've been I'm looking forward to meeting him. He's like, that's what you think, and then the Orson Welles comes up. But yeah, yeah, <laughs> I know exactly what you mean. And but but a lot of the other characters. The supporting characters are kissing Quinlan's butt, so to speak. Oh, you know, he's like, oh, yeah. and I love, I love it when I saw this guy come on the screen. This is a guy that I've seen in tons, tons of work. And he's always doing these small little things. Sometimes it's in comedies and sometimes it's in these type of films. But Ray Collins as D.A. Adair, when he shows up, oh, it's yeah. just like, he's just, I just like, oh, you know, you're going to get an excellent performance, whatever role he does. And in this one, he is the, the DA, but he's like the bureaucratic, you know, butt kisser. First he's kissing Vargas's butt. Then he's kissing Quinlan's because Quinlan's upset with Vargas. And, you know, he's going whichever way the wind blows, you know. It's like, oh, I'm. I'm yeah, exactly. Gutless. I don't want well, it. Well, uh, uh, another, another Orson Welles, you know, bit player from the Mercury Theater days. But uh, my favorite Ray Collins moment is, is Orson Welles is stomping out and he throws his badge down. He's like, I won't be. Uh, I won't accept that badge until the people of this county vote it back. And all Ray Collins says is "ooh," and it's it's such like a, it's like how dare you you say that? Is I was like, yeah, it's <laughs> terrific. Ooh, uh, how dare you? How how could you say such a thing? Um, yeah, and and funny that you talk about people showing up. He, I want to say he's in one shot, but he's probably the ultimate six degrees of separation you can tie so many movies back to him and it's uh my buddy dan day jr who's probably listening to this is going to smile because we always talk about him it's john geerke and he's and i don't know if you're, you're familiar with this guy he's like in everything he's in he's in the freaking omega man <laughs> and get ready for this he's in john wayne's the alamo too so he's whoa he's yeah whoa whoa we can stop the podcast. I'm done. Uh, but it's weird because he's in, it's, it's, the car blows up and they're all waiting for Quinlan to show up. 
and like he's in the back of like one scene. He doesn't have any dialogue, but you can't miss his face. He's the guy. Uh, do you know who I'm talking about? John Gierke? Does that sound familiar at all? No, no. It's probably one of those people when I see him, I'll be like, oh. When you see him, you'll recognize he's the guy in, I don't know if you're familiar with the, the man with x-ray eyes. Yeah. Um, so at the very end, they're in the, the big tent. And so he's the old guy. He's a very weathered face. And he's like, if thine eye offends thee, pluck it out, pluck it out. That That's John Gierke. I don't know if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Um, but it is, for some reason, he's just like in one shot in touch of people. And like this son of a gun, he's in everything. Um, but anyway, yeah, we're, we're talking about now we're getting really nerdy here. <laughs> Ray Collins and John Jerky. Well, you know, there, but there's a couple people we got to give, you know, then there's a supporting cast. We talked about, we talked about Akeem Tamaroff already, you know, who was, Wonderful. Yeah. And I love the little the gag thing that was going on when he loses his toupee. You he, he lost your rag. Here's your rag. And he's like, and this is going on. The, 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 the young guys, you know, keep trying to give him his rag back. They keep calling it the rag. And he's like, what's right? You know, and, and, and it, this goes on for minutes, you know, before he finally puts it back it, it, on. Great. Yeah. And, and, and he, he's like getting in the, uh, the car uh, to go follow Vargas. And like, he looks in the, the mirror to fix his hair. It's, it's what a lovely little, detail and that it is that that's one of my favorite things uh favorite lines where he's like uh he and that white will hope they, they wish they never been born it's just he's just great um but yeah just looking in the mirror and fixing the hair real quick what a great little moment <laughs> you lost your rug uncle joe huh you lost your rug and he, he had to go behind the column to, to put it on it yeah it's, <laughs> it's a yeah. great touch and of course quinlan has his sidekick in Sergeant yeah. Menzies, and you know, you talk about the the one who might be portrayed the most, because yeah, yeah. I think it's Sergeant Menzies because he doesn't realize how corrupt, for whatever reason, yeah. even though they work together, it just does not hit him. He he he's like the number one. Quinlan is the greatest guy. No, he can't. Yeah, do, yeah. We can't do it. He can't. You know, he's like he's the number one cheerleader. He is the number <laughs> one in the fan club, whatever you want to call it. And you can just sense the the love that he has for this yeah. man. And as the movie goes on, when Vargas keeps pointing out all these things, you could just see he's defending him, defending him, defending him, and finally he comes to terms with, oh, it's true, and. Yeah. The, the look and everything. And I can't, I'm not trying to pronounce his last name, but Joseph Calari? Calaria? I, I think it was Joseph Kalia. Kalia. Right? Joseph. It was said in the trailer. Yeah. And yeah, Kalia. Yeah, I think you're right. Yeah, Joseph Kalia. Yeah. Who, uh, by the way, you get, get ready for this, plays Juan Seguin in John Wayne's The Alamo. Oh my God. It all comes back to The Alamo. Uh, that's but, why we have to remember <laughs> The Alamo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah but he's he's another one i mean they all talk i mean orson welles obviously you have to he kind of steals the spotlight but he joseph Kellyan really holds his own i think my my favorite moment is but it shows the growth and the arc of his character how excited he is that they found the dynamite in the sanchez home and he's like if it was a snake it would have bit me and, and you just hear orson welles off screen he's like it's all thanks to you partner he's like ah and he like throws his hand out. Ah, it's not me. And just how joyous he is because he thinks they have aided justice and and done and just to see his 
descent into, oh, this has all been terrible. The axe in the burger case, you killed this guy. Well, I found his cane. It's, yeah, it's just really good. And funny enough, uh, in the reconstructed version, this wasn't the theatrical version, they have that scene where he drives Janet Lee to the hotel. And I was like, this is a really important scene. Why did they cut this <laughs> for the theatrical version? I was like, this kind of tells everything. There's a little moment throughout the reconstruction where you're like, why did they cut this? This is kind of important to the structure of the story. Um, the fact that, that he says something that Quinlan took a bullet for him and that he's his best friend and we, you know, I have to give him his cane. I was like, this is kind of integral to the plot. <laughs> well, and also him bringing the cane to Quinlan establishes that Quinlan leaves his cane behind the lot. Leaves his cane. I, there's so much in those missing scenes where it's like, this is a plant and payoff. There's even the, um, I mean, this is getting really nitpicky here, but uh, the fact that they, in the theatrical cut, you don't see, he, uh, Orson Welles gets up towards the end and, he's, and he sees uh, Menzies outside and he goes, oh, I must be drunk. I thought you were Vargas. And then in the reconstruction, you actually see Vargas look in the window and you see Orson Welles or, or Quinlan see him, giving him a reason to say that. It's just like, you cut that out, there's no reason for him to say it. It's, it's very strange choices. Of like, why did you cut this out? But I know, the suits The suits don't know how to make movies. Let's just, as a general statement, the, the money men rarely know how to make movies, so their, their fingerprints messing with this just irks me. But the other thing I think left unsaid, but I thought this was where the movie was going to go. I don't think this is going to spoil anything. I thought Menzies was being set up to be the fall guy. Like all these things, because he's always the one that finds yeah. the evidence that was planted. So that if, if it ever comes to where Quinlan gets caught, he's going to be like, well, I never found it. Menzies exactly. found it every yeah, single yeah. time. I thought, what? I can't believe this. You know, this well, thing, then- he would sell it and because he has that the character is despicable, but he has charisma with the certain people he needs to have charisma with. And he's so yeah. legendary that he'd probably be able to pull that off. And so Menzies mm-hmm. has always been his pocket ace that if he ever got caught and I was thinking that, you know, for the movie could have went a different way and this could have been, you know, the ultimate portrayal, but Menzies was the only character I think that had a true arc where he had like the change yes. where a change in his thing and the rest of them pretty much stayed status quo. Um, but except yeah. for Menzies. Well, he's, he's the one that has to come over to the other side to, to overwhelm the other side. Uh, yeah. That, that one, and it's a cool thing that you come up with that. That would have been an interesting uh, plot point, but it, I think that's a mark of a good storyteller where you don't know where it's so in your mind you're like okay where is this going if he does this that means that this and it just keeps you guessing until the end so that's cool that that, that you were able to do that and there's some movies and, and i don't want to use gunsmoke because i like gunsmoke but like the movies where it's like okay this is the bad guy he's gonna get shot at the end we know this is gonna happen this is so fluid and it's like wait is quinlan gonna end up winning is he gonna get away with this is this corruption is this blah, 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 blah. Uh, yeah. And listeners, and it, you'll have to watch it. it to find out, does Quinlan get away with it? Does he not get yeah. away with it? <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like, ah, you know, it's, 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 uh, I, I, I think a lot of people haven't, even though this is a, a classic movie and I know people say, well, it's, this movie has been out for what? Like, uh, 65 years now, just about. 
something like that. And um, so it's just like, so we're talking 65 years. I know people say, oh, it's been out 65 years. We can spoil everything. And I'm like, we're doing a movie discussion. But when there's certain movies that, yes, they've been out a long time, but I still think the average person hasn't seen it. I mean, I'm a film enthusiast. I didn't see it till recently. And, yeah, you know, yeah. so it's just, so I'm trying, I always try to keep that in the back of my mind, you know, like I, we're, we spoil some things as we have to when we discuss the movie, but um, this one, I think we can discuss all the way through our full discussion without having to spoil the ending. Some movies you have to spoil the ending because the ending is so critical to, Important. to, yeah, yeah, to yeah. the discussion where you're, you're, you're literally trapped and we have to, we have to bring up the legendary actress who's in it for just a few scenes, but just so pivotal, Marlene Dietrich. I mean, oh. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What, what can you say? Um, I don't know where, where I heard it, but that uh, she was a friend of Orson Welles who just, like, asked her to, to be in it. And, again, again, Hollywood legend, who knows what's true or not, but that the, the suits were watching the dailies, and this, her scene came up, and they're like, Wait, is that Marlene Dietrich? <laughs> like, who did we hire her? This is, like it was almost like like it, she's Orson's friend. Hey, come on down. I have a part for you. I wrote this part for you. Could come on, and she just yeah. And uh, but that just I hope that's true. Where it's like, wait, how did we get Marlene? Isn't she retired? But what what is she doing in this movie? I I just love that idea. Um, and she's another one where you just can't not watch. It's like oh, that's hypnotic. Your future's all your stuff. You know, he was some kind of a man. It's just, yeah, it, it worked. It really worked. And she looks so much younger than she actually is. Yes. I mean, because I looked it up, you know, because you know, I'm just like, I think she was like 57 or something like that at the time, but she looks like she's Dang. in her 40s. <laughs> wow. And it, I mean, it, hey, he published it, so I'm not, you know, saying anything that's not been said. Heston in his uh, journals writes, he's like, she's the sexiest grandma i ever saw something to that effect or something like that but yeah she's she's dying she's hypnotic like i said on screen she's wonderful yeah she was born um december near the end december 1901 so wow so she's like 56 57 years old when they were filming it you know um, wow and that's i mean wow. it's, just, it's just like you, yeah that's, i mean you look at it you're like wow i mean because it's everything. It's, it's her wig that suits her so well. It's the way she's lit. It's the way she's shot. It's the way she acts. She's, again, when she, she's walking away at the end, you would never guess. Wow, wow. I, I didn't know she was that old. I, yeah, you know, it's, it's just one of those things. I, I was blown away because I was looking. I was like, it's like, wow, you know, I wonder how old she was because she's got to be in her 40s. And when I saw that in 1901, I'm like, what? What? Wow. What? What? Say what? Yeah. Hey, yeah, yeah. <laughs> It's like Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise is 60. What? No, that can't be right. You know, My some, man. Some, yeah, some people are just born <laughs> always like, you know, that, with that internal youthful look, you know, for. Yeah. Yeah. Forever. Um, when did she, do you have when, when she passed away? I think it said 1992. No way. So she lived to be like 90, 91. 1992. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Okay. That's awesome. Yeah, she's and just like you said earlier, the film is is peppered with these wonderful actors, and it's just nice to watch actors act. 
just they, they're they're doing their thing and like like I love your your idea of the relay race. It's like okay, and Marlena take it. Okay, and now Ray Collins take it. Okay, Orson will take it for a while. Okay, Chuck. Okay, now Janet Lee. Oh yeah yeah yeah. Freaking. I mean, we'll, we'll, I guess that was your next thing. Uh, Dennis Weaver. You, you know what? You know we're we, you know we're weaving our way to Weaver. Come on, I mean. Uh... <laughs> I saw when I saw the opening credits. You know, because the theatrical version has opening credits, um, showing yeah. all the actors and stuff, and it's just. And I saw Dennis Weaver. I'm like, Dennis Weaver's in this movie, and I was watching yeah. for him because it takes a while for him to show up in the movie, and he's the night manager. Yeah. Boy, you talk about playing a kook. <laughs> Yeah, he's, 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 like I said, you, you feel your blood pressure rise watching Orson. Like, you almost feel your anxiety rise watching Dennis Weaver. I'm like, oh, geez. It's like, ooh, ooh, I'm the night man. So, yeah, he's, he's, again, so, it, it was, so, I wanted to bring this up. All of the, the different actors in it, but they also the little ex- eccentric touches. We talked about the, 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 the rug the fact that Dennis Weaver is like that's such a strange. He has his lunchbox and he's, he's like, "Oh, I'm the Nightman." Blah blah blah. Uh, look, unlucky number seven. Um, but there's also I want I, I want to stay on Dennis Weaver, but I want to bring this up before I forget it. Even Charles Heston has to go uh, into a little shop at one point, and there's a blind woman yes. there, and she has it's such a weird thing she, and he's like do you have your telephone uh can you call and she goes i'm blind mister you can put the telephone in front of me and then there's a little sign that says uh if you're mean enough to steal from the blind please help yourself or something i was like what a unique it is so not the type of movie again we keep coming back to this that was being made in hollywood like just those eccentric touches are so colorful and there's a close even Charles Heston is trying to call Janet Lee and have a, a nice romantic moment with her, and then he catches himself because the blind lady is listening to the the, the, the conversation. He's like, "All right, honey, I'll, I'll be hanging up now." But anyway, to get back to Dennis Weaver, what an interesting. I wonder if that's left over from the book. I haven't read the book, but what an interesting way character. Like that's, that's weird. From what I read, Orson Welles told him to add improvise the role. Oh, okay. okay. So I'm not sure now. Now, again, have not having read the book, there might be certain aspects to the book that, you know, the character was designed. And nowadays we would look, yeah. I mean, you could look at the person as being, I mean, he's, he's weird, but that's the way he's played off. But now I wonder if he's neurodiverse, yeah. you know, like, like, cause the way he's like, he yeah. does certain things. I wonder if he's would be like autistic, you know, like, cause there are certain things he had to do that's a certain that's, way yeah. in a certain order. Um, you know, about how we went about doing things. I think that's the way we would label them now or, or look at them now. Yeah. But in 1958, it, it would just be considered um, an, an offbeat character. And there's some Very parts, offbeat. and there's some parts that he's doing with her that are set up for comedy. Like when he's looking in the window, she's looking at the door, she looks back at the window, you know, there, yeah, there was yeah, some yeah. tension reliefs there from his character. So I think he was mostly set up to relieve tension. Yes. Yes. Well, and then, I mean, logistically, uh, you kind of need someone, not even saying that he's autistic or something, but he's not the, the just as a character, he's not the sharpest guy. Like, you, you don't want, you know, freaking Ray Collins hosting the, 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 the hotel or like being the main, like, you almost need someone who can be taken advantage of for things to, to happen at the, the things that happen at the hotel. So, from a storytelling standpoint, I can kind of see you kind of need a, a, someone who's 
not all there um, uh, to be taken advantage of, unfortunately. Yeah, but also it shows up things that we hadn't been seen yet where, like, the, the youth group is there and what they're doing because his character is yeah, there. Yeah. We're able to get it from his interactions as to what's yeah, happening exactly. in the thing. So there, there is importance to the character, and it's – I'm just saying early on he's a tension release, and then later on he's just this person you're not able to get accurate information from because when Vargas counters – He's him, unreliable, yeah. He, he's like the, he's the totally unreliable narrator. You're like, you know, like, I, I, I need – and you know he knows – but he's not able to articulate or remember or both. Um, And it's just, it's just, um, which, which drives Vargas more and more into a, a rage. And that's of course later is when he goes to the, um, the town and goes to that, that saloon. But going back to the thing you brought up about Santa Vargas going over to the shop to make the call with the the, the blind lady. That, that was the scene that was taking place while the Varga, the Sanchez apartment's going on. So there was like, we talked earlier about yeah. how they, saw, they shot all that stuff, but they do interspace it with these scenes where later Charlton Heston leaves and comes back. And I love it because he wants to make a phone call and he's going to go into the bedroom to make the call at first. And Quinlan wants Menzies yeah. to be in there with him to listen into the call. He goes, look, you can, you can take the letters with you, but go in there and hear that call. Yeah, yeah. And you know, Vargas is smart. And suddenly he's like, oh, I got to go out. He goes out. He yeah. makes the call, so he has his, he has his privacy, and then he comes back. I'm yeah. just like, there are layers that you could see of chess being played by these yeah. two guys, where they're each outthinking the other and countering, and and there's offensive and counter moves being done. I mean, it's just brilliant when you see two characters well written, well acted, um, to where you're able to, and they're smart, and they're able to play that game of cat yeah. and mouse with each other, and that's when you're just Oh, it's, 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 I can only it's imagine. Delicious. I wish I could have been there to see that, that, that filming that went on for an hour. One, I would love to see him do the rehearsal. And then, then when he oh, marked gosh, out the whole yeah. scene and for that day, all you had to do is be there for one day and one, yeah. And just to see it. And mm-hmm. for you, it would be, for me, it would be like a lesson on how to, how to be a filmmaker for you it would be like this class, this master class version where you'd be oh, like I, writing notes. Yeah. You probably fill out a couple of notebooks just from sitting there watching the whole thing. I, I would probably be so overwhelmed. I mean, A, having Orson Welles, you know, watching Orson Welles direct at any director's dream, but then you have Charlton Heston on top of that, and then Orson in costume acting too. It's, it's, I would be overwhelmed. It would be like opening the Ark and Rangers the Lost Ark. I'm like, I can't look at it. <laughs> Close your eyes, Marion. It's too much. Um, the little, little thing I wanted to add, the, the, just the details of like seeing how people act. This was in the reconstructed version. Again, why they cut this out is beyond me. Uh, they have to bring Janet Lee to the hotel and Joseph Kalia gets Akeem Tem- Temerup, Akeem, Uncle yeah. Joe Grande. Yeah. Um, and uh, Kalia kind of arrests Uncle Joe, puts him in the back seat, and, and Kalia tells, or Menzies, I should say, Tells Mrs. Vargas, "Don't worry, no one comes to this hotel." And all Uncle Joe does, he like has a little giggle, which means he's already planning that the youngsters coming and just do. And it's just like, no one comes here. This is in the middle of nowhere. He's like, "You'll be perfectly safe." And he goes, <laughs> "And it's such a subtle thing. It's so subtle and so uh, malicious. And it's it's like, okay, what does he know that we don't know? And you know that the, the kids are going to come and cause all these things. But oh, yeah." And I the love it also sprinkled throughout going so back to the shop scene with the foot, the, with the, the phone call 
And yeah, we're yeah. watching it. You know, you see the, the the shopkeeper, the blind shopkeeper. You see Vargas, and then you see out the store window. And of course, yes, what's playing yes. in the background with no dialogue because you can't hear what they're saying? There's Menzies, and there's the uncle, and he's sh- and he's herding yeah. him into Sanchez's apartment. You could see them having this like, I don't want to go. You know, like what are you doing and all that stuff. Yeah, don't touch me. Don't touch. Yeah. And and he's yeah. love it because that's yeah. what I was meaning about this film is set up in such a way with the the depth of different things going on. It is. Mm-hmm. masterfully and, shot and 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 ma- and planned out meticulously yeah. so you could have all these things going on it's just uh, oh it's just i don't so know what else to say and yeah yeah i know i just i'm right there with you you're preaching to the choir here um that that dynamic rich visual storytelling where you and then when you get to those scenes that you can totally tell we're shot by the studio heads or, or whoever was asked to come in. Clearly not Orson Welles. And it's basically, it's those just two car scenes with the projected background. And you can just feel the whole movie just for a second, like sag. Cause it's like, okay, this is just a really dull flat shot of two people driving. And then Heston has something, uh, Vargas or something like, uh, you know, honey, I mean, it's what I was saying is like, this is the one border where we don't have, and it's just so traditional. It's almost like you get the, the, the this is how movies were. You get that little reminder in the middle of the reconstruction where it's like, remember how, not boring, but how dull some movies in the 50s could be? And, and now let's get back to Orson Welles. <laughs> it's, it's, it, it stands out so much for me anyway, like a sore thumb. is like, oh God, what is, it's almost painful to watch because you know it's not done by a true director who's, using visual cues and camera movements and something. It's so static and, and not that there's anything wrong. I love a good static shot in a traditional Hollywood <laughs> movie thing, but in this, it really stands out. Oh, it definitely does. And like I said, uh, 12 angry men, I'm going back to that again, because here, here's a film that takes yes. place in a room or basically two rooms. Cause there's the restroom yeah. also, but for the most part, it's in the, the liberation room. And, the way it is shot there is like an action movie being shot in a drama with the, the with the cameras, the cutting, the, the, yeah. everybody doing different things. I mean, I, I've seen that movie, I don't know, 50, 60 times probably in my life so far. And I'm still always finding new things. And I've seen other versions of 12 angry men. Uh, the one with Henry Fonda is still by far the best. You know, it, easily. It, it's easily, you know, it's just, and that's just, I'm not saying just the acting, which the acting is so top notch, but it's just the way it's filmed. This movie touch of evil, I think is going to be another one of those that the acting, everybody, I think when you have actors of the caliber that were brought in just in supporting roles, you yeah, know, yeah, I mean, you know, brings everybody's game up because now, you know, Hey, I'm in a film with so-and-so I better bring it. And mm-hmm. and so everybody is yeah. everybody is just juiced. But I think Orson Welles, by listening to the actors, working with them, doing the rehearsals, had that thing running on all cylinders so that when it went the wind went down, it just went boom and zoomed right on into yeah. it. And I think that that's the thing that's missing a lot with movies nowadays is people don't have the time to do that rehearsal, that blocking that and 
for various reasons. But, I'm talk- but Hollywood already have yeah. the money and the budget to do it. It just, it's sadly, there's no excuse. They have the time and the money. Your your situation where you're doing films on a, it is called a budget. You know, there, there you know, it's, there, there is. <laughs> if you can call it a budget. <laughs> well, I mean, it, it, it does have a budget, but it you don't have the time. I mean, you have the time, but you don't have the money to actually be able yeah, to put yeah. that extra time into to doing the different things with that. It's, it's where you wish you like, you know, it's like, man, if I had this money, we could do this and this and this, and we'd have yeah, yeah. work out all the kinks. Cause you've done tons of theater okay. where you have the time yeah. to do the rehearsal. So I know, you know how to do all these things and it's just, but you have to have the money and you have to have the time where you have the performers yeah. there. Cause you have things where you have people that are flying in from other areas. You have them for a week and you have, and, yeah. and literally you have a week and it's, it's just, literally, yeah. That people would uh, talk about uh, my film of House of the Gorgon, which I had to, to had to fly over hammered ladies uh, to be in it in South Texas, and they're like, "Well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you do this?" And I was like, "You don't understand. We had one week. We had the budget for one week, less than a week. So we were shooting for five days. We had to do everything in one week: the costume fittings, the rehearsals, everything, and." There's, there's people like, well, you should have done this. I was like, yeah, well, we had such limited time. I mean, I think any director would love a huge budget just, just to have the time to perfect stuff. That's why, uh, not to make it all about me, but Mantipus is taking so long because I'm really focusing on just getting it right and let's take our time and do it right. But uh, in one of the interviews on the Blu-ray, Charlton Heston says that this Touch of Evil was the last movie Orson Welles made in America. And like I had to take a moment. I was like, "That's not true." And I was like, "Yeah, that's that's shocking." Because uh, what chimes at midnight? I think is later on. I and mean, in terms of the films that he directed, chimes at midnight and then after fake. You brought up uh, maybe Othello might have been before this or after this. Um, but I thought of that, and like Orson never got the chance to have not that touch of people with a big budget, but like a studio back production which is so unfortunate i mean hey unfortunate from an orson welles fan it's like oh we didn't get to see this but maybe that's part of the allure of like oh we never got to see it so we can only see what he could have done anyway blah blah blah, blah. um but you're right having that studio backing that eventually you know turned on him at the end of it but having the time to rehearse and do it right you get a glimpse of oh this is when a good director has the time and the money to really focus on some things, you get some great, uh, not all the time, but you get some, some, at least with such a people, you get some good results, great results. Oh yeah. And, and, I'm, and one of the things I want to make sure I, I, people understand there's sometimes I think there are some creators, some filmmakers, some storytellers that should be reined in, you know, cause sometimes they'll have Absolutely. these things and, there's been a lot of films well, got- that have come out recently, which I'm always like, it's it's 10 minutes, 20 minutes, or a half hour too long. There's indulgences there that just it's like, I, I, and I yeah, make that's, that- that's why I <laughs> no, that's why I said I was like sometimes I was trying to not to say all directors need that, but this, some directors, yeah, I agree. Maybe if they had a cap on the budget, if they had you know at the time they might, but I mean everyone works differently sometimes. Some directors need that and they need the, the timeline. And, and I think it's important, at least for me as a director, 
said, try everything. I've tried the, the one week thing and then I've tried the five year thing and finding that, that middle ground or whatever you're more comfortable with. And if you can make that work, make it work. Um, but yeah, I, I agree. There, there's some modern films where I'm like, did we need to be three and a half hours long? Did this, <laughs> did, we, did this have to have, you know, this giant battle scene at the end? Just because you I can do it doesn't mean you should do it. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Jeff Goldblum. Uh, <laughs> like they were so, what is the Jurassic Park line? They were so preoccupied uh, with whether they could, they didn't know if they should or some, something like that. Oh yeah. It's a, well, it's a line has been used by so many people, you know, it's, 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 yeah, it's, yeah, it's yeah. forever used. Um, but this film, I guess we could apply that to the suit just because you can take the editing from Wells doesn't mean you should. <laughs> yeah. 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 But, and again, I, I'm not to, to, to get on the studio side. I'm just trying to understand their reasoning. They're like, how could they do this? It's like, no, think about being a studio suit at universal in 1957, 58 and seeing this film that it doesn't have a good guy, doesn't have a bad guy. It's so morally ambiguous. You're, you're dealing with politics of Mexico and the U S and then the way it's shot, we're outside. There's no studio shots. You're using handheld cameras. You're, it, it must've been so overwhelming for them that they're like, we have to do something to make our money back. I can, I want to say I can kind of see where they're coming from. Um, but I mean, not to say that they should have done that, but I can understand that we got to save this. This is a flop in the making. It's like, no, this is only, this isn't a flop in the making. This is 40 years ahead of its time. <laughs> this is 50 years ahead of its time. Let it have its moment. But in terms of the suit, we need to make money. Money, uh, films is a business. Hollywood is a business. We need to make our money back. We need to do something to save it. I can kind of see what they're talking about. I wanna, I'm, I'm happy you picked this movie. For listeners wondering, Josh and I are originally going to do Independence Day because he wrote science fiction. Yes. And Speaking as, of Jeff Goldblum, there you go. <laughs> and, and Jeff Goldblum. And, <laughs> and because of things that we talked about earlier in that, um, uh, things happened in Josh's life, and then we just, and he decided, no, we should do it next year when it's closer to Independence Day because it fits Independence Day. Independence Day. It, Absolutely. It, it's kind of a, you know, it came out on Independence Day. We, you know, sometimes the suits do know how to put a movie out at the right time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> because it made, it made tons and tons and tons and tons and tons of money. So that will be one of the films we'll be doing in the future. And I said at the Josh, I said, Hey, do you, cause I, I know we love certain actors and directors. And I said, how about the Norson Wells film? And Josh, of course, immediately responded back. I mean, probably as soon as he read my message, touch of evil. I mean, it came back, you know, <laughs> as soon as he saw boom, <laughs> touch of evil, which ties in two of his favorites, Charlton Heston and, Orson Welles. So what Josh and I talked about prior to recording is what we're going to attempt to do, and it's going to take a long time to, to, to get any, any inroads into these, these two, we are going to do one movie each year that we roll a die. Of course, Independence Day will be next year's movie. And then we're going to do an Orson Welles movie, whether he directs it, or acts significantly in it, you know, so transformers, uh, I don't know if we're ever going to cover that one. <laughs> <laughs> we could. <laughs> when we get near the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When we're scraping the bottom of the barrel, we have some, some good gems to do before that. <laughs> and, and of course, Charlton Heston, you know, which, which um, you know, you're one of the, you're one of the bigger fans 
of Charlton Heston that are out there. I mean, that, that, no, that, no, I mean, you, you've dropped, you've name dropped reading his autobiography or his journal notes. I'm sorry, his journal notes multiple times, <laughs> you know? Yeah, you, I know. I, just, <laughs> I, I, I brushed up last night just to see what he wrote about country people. So it's a little fresh in my mind. I'm not that crazy. No, I am that crazy, but it's just for listeners listening. <laughs> I don't know him verbatim <laughs> what he wrote. <laughs> He's lying. Of course, he knows it verbatim. He, that's you know he listens. Yeah, to, I know. Yeah, he's got the audio version. He goes he's, to sleep with it. You know, he always hears Chuck <laughs> talking to him every night. You know? So yeah, I haven't read that that journal in five years, so it's still verbatim. <laughs> when he asks a girl after when a girl and him are asking about date, the first one, the first thing he says, "What do you think of Charlton Heston?" Did they say who? It's like that oh, was nice talking to you. <laughs> yeah, move, move. At next, next. next. <laughs> yeah. And then, and then if they no, get, my, once it says Charles, do you my, know him? And they're like, oh yeah. And it's like, well, what movie do you like of his? And then, it, and then he, and then he get really gets you know, nitpicky. <laughs> yeah, that's when you know. No, I'm I'm ashamed to admit it, but I have used um a date or two was well with your permission, I'd like to kiss you goodbye. So I I <laughs> there is some truth to this Charles Heston fandom. I have used that in real life. So yeah, there is some. It's not all jokes, but there is some some truth. <laughs> As we find out more. So, um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I'm not sure what our next movie that I'll be doing with Josh is going to be, but we do know Josh's next movie is going to be Mantipus because it's in the final stages of getting yeah. its, um, composing. I think, I think when Reber posts on Facebook, he's on stage, the third part of the movie. So he's an act three, yeah. I guess, um, and doing that. And then after he's done that, what, what else is there left to be done to it? Anything else? But- for Mantis, it's it's we have a few inserts that need to be shot, and we're shooting on um, actual. I might have mentioned this before. Uh, Sixteen millimeter film. So it's my first film shot, feature film shot on actual film, and man, is it worth it! But that takes, compared to coming from digital land, that takes for freaking ever. You need to just get the light meter right. You got to get the right focus. Everything is manual. It's an old antique camera from the 60s and just getting you have to pulling that out it's a i know i need i was born <laughs> in the 60s in. i was born in the 60s yeah. an old antique <laughs> yeah. yes honey i was born yeah. in the 60s i'm an old antique I <laughs> <laughs> I, but well yeah so um anyway so the point being is that, that takes a lot longer than just going out with a digital camera and shooting it and then it has to get processed i have to send the film to new england to get processed and then i get it back and hopefully then it's in good shape we've been doing okay so far but we have a few things to add a few inserts to add so hopefully by i'd love to have it out by halloween um if not by the end of the year for sure um and but i'm very very happy with it we talked about take i've taken my time with this this has taken five years to just really perfect i thank my cast for just being patient with me i mean there's stuff that we shot five years ago that is intercut with stuff that we shot this year and it's just it blends really well but for us it's like whoa how long have we been working on this film because i want to get it right i want to be happy with it i want to try like i said i've done the one week thing where you shoot the whole movie in one week which is i do not recommend <laughs> but, and i've tried the five i've tried the five year Thing too, which I also do not recommend, but I want to get the best of both worlds, and I think the movie is all the better for my taking the time to do it. And for listeners uh, to follow more about Joshua Kennedy, international 
filmmaker of mystery. <laughs> Where can they go? <laughs> Thank you. Um, I have my, I'm on Facebook. It's Joshua Kennedy, man of the art. And I've just been getting used to Instagram. And I think it's Joshua Kennedy, 1964. Let me see. If you want to follow Joshua Kennedy, 1964. Um, and then on, on YouTube, just type Joshua Kennedy and some, something will come, come up. Um, but yeah, thank, thank you for, again, for the shameless plug. Um, yeah. Touch of Evil, guys. If you haven't uh, seen it, please check it out. It's, it's. I think you'll. There's something for everyone to enjoy. I can't. I don't see how someone could not enjoy this. I hate to be that guy, but I'm like, this is just. It's such a. It's a good movie. If you, um, if maybe we're biased. If you love films, you'll love this movie. You know, I mean, it's it's right up your yeah. alley. It's filmed in glorious black and white, and it's just. Oh. Just wonderful. Yeah. Yeah. Highly recommend. So thanks again, Josh, for joining me. And listeners, as always, leave us feedback at diecastmoviepodcast at gmail.com or leave us a message on our Facebook page. And um, pay attention to our next episode, which will either be an interview or a movie that's decided by the role of a die. And Josh will be back. I think we're leaning towards a Charlton Heston movie, which has a tie, two tie. Well, actually, I think now three tie-ins because you brought another one up I didn't even know about from this movie. Because we have Charlton Heston, we have the same cinematographer, and then you brought up that other guy oh, who's in it. Yeah, John Deerges, yeah, yeah. The, the wonderful 1971 classic, The Omega Man, is coming sometime later this year. And I know Josh will have some things to say about it because he did his version of The Omega Man, which is yes. what, is the Alpha Omega Man? The Alpha Omega Man. <laughs> which is on YouTube, so people, you can go watch yes. that. A college, a college student budget. So it's it's, but it does do a nice homage to the original movie. Well, thank you, thank you, and but uh, thank you for having me on on this show. It's always a pleasure talking with you, my good man. So thank you. Oh, you're you're welcome. Well, I hope everybody enjoyed that episode on Touch of Evil with Joshua Kennedy. And just want to remind everybody that Joshua Kennedy's latest movie is available on. Amazon Prime, the Innsmouth School for Girls, and we're going to listen to a trailer for it. I uh, hope everybody has a good day, and thanks again for listening. Now to the trailer. Remember the fun you had in school? Remember the camaraderie you felt amongst your friends and peers? Remember the pranks you used to pull? Remember the cafeteria food? Remember your teachers, the good and the bad? Remember the fish people? Join us. <laughs>